You're listening to Surreal Sports Stories with your host, Mike Ginocchio. Let's start with the obvious. Die Hard is the greatest Christmas movie of all time. It's also one of the most beloved action movies of all time. Great plot, great characters, great dialogue, just a whole lot of great. Plus, it inspired Andy Samberg's character from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Jake Peralta, so it stands the test of time as a cultural landmark. There are a lot of scenes in the movie that, in the space of watching a film, have you suspend your disbelief. For example, the idea that a lone hero cop can take on a batch of roughly a dozen well-armed, well-dressed, and well-financed European terrorists comes to mind. Or the idea that you can jump from an exploding rooftop using a fire hose as a bungee cord. And, of course, the idea that Bruce Willis was the star of a movie that is clearly Alan Rickman's greatest contribution to humanity. But there's one scene in particular that I'd like to focus on. It occurs roughly a third of the way through the movie, after Bruce Willis's hero cop, John McClane, has escaped the terrorists for the first time. Through a series of high-risk and slightly unbelievable maneuvers, McClane finds himself inching his way belly down through ventilation shafts in the Nakatomi Plaza. He flicks a lighter on, illuminating his already battle-worn visage, as he mutters sarcastically, Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. It's a funny scene, but also unrealistic. There's no way that Bruce Willis, who is listed at six foot tall, could make his way through ventilation piping and shafts in the ceiling with the ease that he does. It couldn't happen in real life. Well, somebody didn't listen. Because less than five years after Die Hard broke the box office, someone decided to put themselves through the same cramped circumstances to which Bruce Willis had subjected himself. Was there motivation like that of John McClane, an everyman cop who originally came to Nakatomi Plaza to patch things up with his estranged wife Holly, and ride off into the sunset like John Wayne with Grace Kelly as the deserved hero overcoming a hellish night? Hell no. This was all over a baseball bat. The year is 1994. It's the middle of July, right in the heart of baseball season. Our story is set at what was then known as Comiskey Park, the home of the Chicago White Sox, who were facing off against the Cleveland Indians. It's been a rough and tumble season, with a healthy heaping of just plain weird to go on top. First off, the Sox and the Indians are duking it out for first place in the American League Central, which is a brand new division that had been created just for the start of this season. The Sox had won the American League West the previous season, and they were looking to win the division title again this year. But the real surprise has been the Cleveland Indians. The previous season, situated in the stacked American League East, the Indians finished an anemic 76-86, and with only the lowly Milwaukee Brewers doing worse. This season, however, they've turned around their fortunes and they are now nipping at the heels of the Sox for first place. Not exactly what you would expect from a Cleveland sports team. Okay, okay, that was a low blow. But the weirdness just continues. 
1994, and basketball legend Michael Jordan has returned from his surprise retirement to continue his career in Chicago sports, only instead of playing with the Chicago Bulls, whom he's won three championships with, Jordan is currently playing with the White Sox's minor league affiliate, the Birmingham Barons. Jordan insisted that the move was to fulfill the dream of his late father, who had dreamed of seeing his son in a Major League Baseball uniform. The national media, as well as the general public, were, in a word, puzzled. Unfortunately for Jordan, he would only go on to hit 202 with three home runs and 51 RBI, and it was little surprise that he would rejoin the Bulls for the 1995 NBA season. There's also rumblings of labor discontent. Continual efforts to sign an agreement between the Players Union and MLB owners led to nothing. The owners are battling with Commissioner Faye Vincent, who alleges that owners are colluding with each other in order to devalue free agency for players. No collective bargaining agreement has been signed, and in August of 1994, Major League Baseball would have a forced labor stoppage, where the owners literally locked their players and employees out of the stadiums. The labor stoppage would last over 200 days, canceling the postseason and making MLB the first professional sports league in American history to lose both the postseason and championship series due to labor disputes. Considering all of this zaniness going around, perhaps it's no wonder that something off the wall was going to happen at Comiskey. The only thing not surprising was who it was going to center around. Cleveland Indian superstar, Albert Bell. Albert Bell was difficult to miss. Standing six foot two and listed at 225 pounds, Bell was the type of player who hit baseballs like they personally offended him. In 1994, he was in the second of a five-year run where he would make the American League All-Star team, in the second of a four-year run where he would be named a Silver Slugger, an award given to the best offensive player at a certain position, and the next season he would become the first player in Major League Baseball history to hit 50 home runs and 50 doubles in a season. In this season, he's currently batting around 360, which is a stupendously high mark. Bell would go on to finish second in the batting title race, hitting 357 to New York Yankees outfielder Paul O'Neill's 359. But Bell is well known, not just for being a menace at the plate. He was also known as a menace, period. In 1990, the Cleveland Indians had sent Bell to rehab for alcoholism. In 1991, Bell was suspended for seven games when he threw a baseball at a fan who apparently had successfully heckled Bell. Baseball writer Buster Olney wrote that, quote, It was taken in baseball circles that Albert Bell was nuts. Bell's teammates were not exempt from his behavior. Olney reported that the Indians routinely billed Bell $10,000 a season for the damage he caused to team clubhouses both away and at home and tolerated it because he was that great of a hitter. He also noted other instances of Bell's, shall we say, tempestuous nature. After a particularly crummy showing at the plate one day in Boston, Bell would retreat to the team's clubhouse and destroy the boombox of teammate Kenny Lofton with his bat. Most infamously, Olney reported that Bell was particular about the clubhouse thermostat. He insisted on keeping the temperature at 60 degrees. One day, when a naive teammate turned up the thermostat, Bell walked over turned it back down to 60 degrees, and then smashed the thermostat with his bat. From then on, his nickname was Mr. Freeze. Interesting dude. But back to this July 15th afternoon in Chicago. Bell is at the plate, looking to channel his ruthless aggression on yet another hapless baseball. And if the pitcher is dumb, he'll give Bell exactly what he wants. But right before the regular game of cat and mouse that pitchers and hitters engage in can begin, 
there's activity in the Chicago White Sox dugout, and that's where this story gets weird. White Sox manager Gene Lamont is a baseball lifer. Ironically, he grew up a Chicago Cubs fan, and his playing career in the pros has only amounted to a cup of coffee. But he's found success as a manager, and is in his third season managing the White Sox. His first two seasons, he's led the Sox to winning records. He's looking to go 3-for-3 this season, but right now, he's looking at Albert Bell's bat. Lamont knows enough about baseball to know that a right-handed hitter like Bell is most likely to hit home runs to left field, but he's watched Bell hit a lot of powerful shots to right field, which goes against the laws of physics. He's also heard some things, as he would later state. As he watches Bell get set, he begins to suspect that Bell is hitting with a corked bat. And then, his suspicion overrides his tact. Lamont challenges the legitimacy of Bell's bat. Managers are allowed one challenge per game about a bat. The umpires grab the bat from Bell and expect it carefully. Then, to everyone's surprise, the umpires confiscate the bat. They will check to see if it's corked later. What does it mean for a bat to be corked, and why does that matter so much that Lamont would stop the game just for this? Corking a bat is a relatively straightforward process, but to understand why it happens, you need to know the makeup of a baseball bat. Typically, baseball bats are solid wood with no hollow part inside. That way, when it makes contact with the ball, the bat doesn't immediately shatter upon impact. But that also means that a bat is heavier than, say, an aluminum bat that kids are able to use. The idea is that you should be able to swing full-grown lumber at the ball without much difficulty. You're a man, after all. You're strong enough. To cork a bat, then, is to hollow out the bat and then fill in the hollowed portion of the bat with something solid that keeps the bat's integrity, but is also considerably lighter than the wood that makes up the bat. Thus, you can swing the bat much faster through the strike zone, and as anyone with a basic understanding of physics will tell you, a faster bat swing will generate more power for the hitter. It's an underhanded tactic to gain an edge in a sport that is rife with corner cutting. But why cork? Probably because it looks similar to the wood used for a bat. And if you paint it the same color as the bat, only an eagle eye would spot the difference. The first instance of a player getting caught with a corked bat came back in 1974, when New York Yankees star Greg Nettles was caught red-handed with a bat that was stuffed with six rubber Super Balls. Nettles' plea that it was a gift from a fan did not impress MLB. They suspended him for 10 days. The second instance came in 1987, when Houston Astros outfielder Billy Hatcher was busted with a bat that he had borrowed from teammate Dave Smith, a pitcher. He also got 10 days. Now, Albert Bell looked to be the third man caught in the act, and looked to be the third man who would be suspended. As the umpires put the bat away... Looking to deal with it later, the Indians were over in their dugout, panicking. It wasn't going to be easy to argue that Bell was simply using someone else's bat by mistake. It was clearly Albert's bat. No, here was their superstar caught red-handed in the act, and when Major League Baseball conducted a proper investigation, they would no doubt suspend Bell for cheating. And the days that Bell would be out of the lineup would be devastating to an Indians team that was fighting tooth and nail just to stay alive in the playoff picture. This brings us to Jason Grimsley. Jason Grimsley is, to use an expression you might hear in his native Texas, a beanpole. He stands six foot three and weighs only 180 pounds. Growing up in Cleveland, Texas, he was no stranger to adventure. He enjoyed climbing trees and riding his motorbike as a kid, 
and he was no stranger to taking risks and maybe sometimes paying the consequence for that. At the age of 12, while riding his motorbike, he had suffered an accident that cost him one of his toes. Clearly, he was not afraid of taking risks, and clearly, he wasn't going to let things stop him. And sitting in the Cleveland dugout, as panic began to brew, a thought popped into his head. I can get that bat. And thus, a heist worthy of Hollywood was born. First, Grimsley did the mental math. He knew that the umpire's office, where the confiscated bat was kept, was on the same level of the stadium as the team clubhouse. He also knew that the clubhouse had a trick ceiling, the type that had removable tiles. He figured that the umpire's office had the same setup. Then, after walking down the hallway past the clubhouse and the offices to do some reconnaissance, he remembered that the rooms were framed by cinder block walls. Walls that separated the rooms, but also had drywall in between them and the insulation and the actual rooms themselves. Basically, he would have a pathway to walk on, but not much. The cinder block walls were 18 inches wide. Step wrong, and you were likely to plunge through the ceiling. By his guess, he determined that the umpire's office was about 100 feet from the Indian's clubhouse. That was doable. With the help of an Indian's employee, whose identity has never been revealed, Grimsley went to work. He grabbed a teammate's bat, a yellow flashlight, and went to Indian's manager Mike Hargrove's office. Standing on the desk, he removed a ceiling tile. Then, with the help of this Indian staffer, Grimsley shimmied his way up into the ceiling and into the most difficult and craziest challenge of his professional baseball career. Grimsley's first thought was that it was hairy up in that ceiling. It was hot, it was dark, and his pathway was littered with piping and wires that crisscrossed the cinder block walls. He and his accomplice moved slowly and carefully, taking great care not to rupture a single pipe. After all, he was a pitcher, not a civil engineer. Who knew what terrible things would happen if he accidentally burst a pipe? It was hot and difficult and most prominently, slow going. As he got closer and closer to his destination, Grimsley was reduced to crawling on his stomach just to move forward. By his estimate, it took him roughly 35 minutes to be up above where he thought the umpire's office was. Once he located the spot, he looked at his compatriot, nodded, and lifted up the ceiling tile. He'd guessed wrong. Below him was not the umpire's office. It was a break room for the Comiskey groundskeeper staff. And furthermore, there was someone down there below him sitting on a couch. Frantically, Grimsley replaced the tile. He waited, heart pounding in his chest, for the groundskeeper to say something and ruin the whole enterprise. But instead, there was silence. Finally, Grimsley and his amigo continued their journey. A few feet to the right, Grimsley removed another ceiling tile. Score! It was the umpire's room. And there, sitting in an umpire's locker, was the missing bat. Grimsley had no time to wait. Any second he wasted was time that an umpire could come into the office. If that happened, the jig was up. So he moved without thinking. First, he stepped down from the opening in the ceiling tile onto a refrigerator. Then, he went from the refrigerator to the counter. Quick as a flash, he grabbed Albert's bat and replaced it with the clean bat. Taking great care to wipe up his footprints, Grimsley got back up into the ceiling and closed the ceiling tile behind him. At that very moment, he heard the door to the office open. Silence. He waited with bated breath, knowing that he was at most 20 feet away from this mystery figure. Was it an umpire? He had no idea. Two minutes passed, but every second felt like an eternity. Finally, 
he heard the sound of the door opening again and then closing shut. As quickly as he could, he retraced his steps. He made his way back to the Indians' clubhouse, back to the dugout, and took a seat. It had taken him 30 or more minutes, or the equivalent of four innings, but Grimsley was there back in the Indians' dugout. His teammates both thrilled and incredulous that he had somehow managed to pull this mission impossible off. It was a perfect crime. Or was it? For starters, only a complete moron would have thought that the bats were identical. Why? Well, Albert Bell's bat was shiny and brand new. The replacement bat was battered, cracked in places, and covered in pine tar. It looked, as the head umpire remarked, as though it had seen a lot of use. It also had Bell's teammate's name on it, Paul Sorrento. Furthermore, Grimsley's raid wasn't exactly as secretive as he thought. He had heard the door open, and he had heard someone enter the office. It wasn't an umpire, though. It was Vince Fresso, who was the Comiskey official in charge of the umpire's quarters. Fresso had been the one who had placed the bat in the office in the first place. He'd locked the office and then gone to watch the first few innings of the game from the bench. After that, he'd returned to the office to check on things and immediately knew something was wrong. He saw pieces of ceiling insulation scattered on the floor, and when he looked up, he spotted several ceiling tiles in a few locations had been knocked out of place, and there were metal support strips that had been mysteriously bent out of shape almost as if they were supporting more weight than what they were supposed to. The news of the heist broke, and the White Sox were furious. Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf remarked that it was a serious crime. Major League Baseball commissioner Bud Selig, channeling his inner Scooby-Doo, stated that baseball was, quote, going to get to the bottom of this. It was such an audacious affair that MLB hired the services of Kevin Hallinan, a former FBI official, to conduct the investigation. It didn't take long for the FBI investigation to determine that there was a robbery, but who was the culprit? That was a slipperier question. Possible leads included members of the Indians team who hadn't dressed in uniform that day. After all, if they weren't in uniform, then they had the time to go do this. One lead even suggested that it was an Indian superfan who had committed the deed. But no one thought to question the lanky starting pitcher for the Indians, who probably had dust and insulation now poking out of his hair. Either way... Albert Bell was cooked. Though he had had no active part in the heist, he was still requested to submit the bat for testing. A few days later, MLB had Bell and Indians GM John Hart present as they sawed the bat in half and x-rayed it for signs of cork. Finding the smoking gun, Bell was suspended for 10 games. Upon appeal, it was reduced to just 7. However, shortly after this sordid affair came the labor stoppage of 1994, and the Cleveland Indians finished in second place in the division by one game, to the Chicago White Sox. As the dust settled, the Chicago Tribune asked the question that everyone was asking. Why hadn't the thief just replaced the Albert Bell bat with another Albert Bell bat? Somehow, impossibly, no one suspected Grimsley. For the next three seasons, he stayed quiet about it. Then, in a 1999 New York Times interview with Buster Olney, Grimsley came clean. He remarked that he had done it as a service to the Cleveland Indians, and it was unlikely that Major League Baseball would suddenly drop the hammer on a journeyman relief pitcher who was now in his 30s and now at the tail end of his career. And as to the Tribune's disbelieving question of why they hadn't swapped Bell's bat with another of his own, Grimsley had an answer for that too. All of Albert Bell's bats were corked. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Surreal Sports Stories. A big thanks to Buster Olney, The New York Times, The New Yorker, 
the Chicago Tribune, and all the other sources that I used in putting together today's episode. Hope you enjoyed the listen, and hope you'll come around for another time. Stay steady, y'all. Till next time, I'm your host, Mike Ginocchio.